Let's get into verse 41 now. And he, that's the prophet, hasted and took the ashes away from his face. And the king of Israel discerned him that he was of the prophets. To get an honest answer from Ahab about this parable, about his judgment, what would you do? This prophet had to disguise himself. Ahab was Mr. Righteous when speaking with an ordinary citizen. He could pontificate with the best of them, no doubt. And that ordinary citizen may or may not have been one who knew God. But this prophet knew more about Ahab than Ahab knew because this prophet was God's prophet. Now the ashes are removed. The disguise is gone. And Ahab, the text tells us, discerned him that he was one of the prophets. Well, that's scary, isn't it? That word discerned is to recognize or to acknowledge. And it's sad that Ahab didn't recognize the prophet by the parable. Whether the prophet had ashes on his face or not, when Ahab heard that prophet give that parable or recount that event, Ahab should have said, "Uh uh-oh, this is a parable from the Lord. For surely an ordinary citizen would not be so brave as to approach the king with a riddle. Can you imagine that? Just calling out the king and saying, I've got a riddle for you. I've got a parable for you, but a prophet of the Lord would be so brave because what is that prophet's life to him? It's in God's hands, and therefore it is nothing. But instead, Ahab recognized this prophet by his outward appearance, by his face. Do you know how we recognize a preacher of God's word? We don't do it by recognizing his face, do we? We recognize a preacher of God's word by what he says. We recognize him by the doctrine he teaches. And it seems like in those days and in our day, the more priestly garments a man wears, or a woman in some cases, the less priestly doctrine he proclaims. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 5, Jesus said this about the unholy Pharisees and scribes. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. For they make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. If you've studied that verse before, you may recall that a phylactery was a a piece of, was a container that held scripture. But the word actually means garrison or a fortified place. And it's used in this one place in Scripture, in Matthew chapter 23. And it pertains to a strip of parchment that has Old Testament verses on them, and they're from Exodus and Deuteronomy. And those parchments were held in small cases, held by a leather strap over the forehead and the left arm. Now, that information is gleaned from Jewish history. You're not going to find that in the Bible as specified like that. It's not spelled out for us. 
But the container on the forehead, the phylactery, was to be a fortified place. Remember, that's what phylactery is. It's a garrison or a fortified place. It was to be a fortified place that guarded God's word. And it should have been an outward signification of an inward guarding of God's word in the heart of that Pharisee or that scribe. But that was not the case. And the Pharisees and the scribes, particularly the ones of whom Jesus spoke, wore those to advertise themselves as being adherents to God's word. And he said they broadened their phylacteries. They made them bigger. They wanted everybody to see, you're looking at a man of the cloth. They had doctrine all over the outside, but not on the inside. And the way such a priest was recognized was by his apparel, including those ever-broadened phylacteries and garments. And that priest may have even spoken God's word. But what did Jesus say about those Pharisees and scribes? He said they did their works to be seen of men. Once again showing us it wasn't what they had on the inside. It wasn't their doctrine. The priest might have spoken God's word. But that priest, that Pharisee was nothing more than the creepy clergy we learn about in the book of Jude. Same person. Just in a different chapter. Just in a different time in history. Now, the prophet in our text valued God's doctrine. And Ahab should have recognized him before the prophet ever removed the ashes from his face. It didn't matter whether the prophet was somebody Ahab knew personally or not. He happened to know who he was. But the doctrine should have mattered. Now, a second observation about this phrase discerned him that he was of the prophets. That tells us that the prophet's name continues to be left out. What was more important than the prophet's name? It was that he was one of the prophets. That was more important than his name, and that's what's important. You know, I've heard some good Bible teaching in my life in person, on the radio, on the television. I've read some good Bible doctrine by authors, most of whom are not even alive. And I don't remember the name of every teacher, every good teacher I ever heard, every good message that I ever heard. But what I do remember is that I recognized that their doctrine was of God, even if they had ashes on their face to me. Even if I didn't recognize the name or remember it later, their doctrine was of God. And you know the opposite of that is true as well. I remember the names and faces of several teachers, but I did not discern that they were of the prophets. Their doctrine was not of God. No, it was all about God. It was all about the Bible, if you understand what I mean. But Satan is the author of that sleight of hand. He talked to Eve about the Bible, didn't he? He talked to Eve about God's word and about what God said. In fact, he's the one who brought it up. He said, yea, if 
not God said. And whether the intentions of those such Pharisees, whether it was the ones Jesus encountered or the ones you or I have encountered in our day, whether their intentions were sincere or prideful or just born of ignorance, the spiritual ashes remained on their faces even though the physical ashes may not have been there. Verse 42, And he said unto him, that's the prophet said unto Ahab, Thus saith the Lord, because thou hast let go out of thy hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, that's Ben-Hadad, therefore thy life shall go for his life, and thy people for his people. Why did God tell us about the events concerning this prophet in the middle of a story about a captured Syrian king? A passage that may have appeared to be out of place to you at first glance, but now you've seen, oh, this was teaching us all about the passage. God doesn't put anything out of place. Why did God tell us about all that? To teach us about the importance of taking what God has delivered into your hands rather than letting it go on its way again. The punishment for Ahab in this case would be death and the death of his people. Verse 43. And the king of Israel went to his house heavy and displeased and came to Samaria. Heavy is also translated as sad. And it carries the meaning of being sullen, of being stubborn, even resentful, pouting we might say. And then displeased is angry or out of humor, even vexed. Those are words that may help you understand it. We use displeased. We don't use heavy in the context it's used here in Scripture. But these emotions of being, of feeling heavy, of feeling displeased, should have been replaced by repentance. And those emotions are very similar to the response given by Cain after he killed his brother Abel. In fact, I'll read you that passage from Genesis chapter 4, verses 9 through 14. It's from Genesis 4, verses 9 through 14, if you're writing that down. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now thou art cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. So these two situations, the one Cain was in and the one Ahab was in, are very similar. In Cain's situation, God spoke directly to him and delivered him the bad news 
the consequences for his actions. And in our text, God spoke through a prophet to Ahab to deliver to him the bad news about the consequences of his actions. Same type of message, just different words. And you could rightly say that Cain, just like Ahab, was heavy and displeased with God's sentence against him. But he was not repentant, as our pastor pointed out a couple of weeks ago when we studied this verse in another lesson. Let's look at another passage because we want to learn how to respond correctly when we're chastened. We'll look at another passage, and you're welcome to turn there if you like. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Not, it's back to your left a few pages. And I'll begin reading in verse 1 when we get there. This is a familiar passage to you because if you've been in the Sunday school class for very long, we studied this not too many months ago, but now we're going to look at it to explain the context of the passage we're in in 1 Kings. It's 2 Samuel chapter 12, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. So do you see what Nathan the prophet is doing? He's giving David a parable. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock, of his own herd, to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. Now, girls, that doesn't mean he put little pink sweaters on the lamb. He killed the lamb, cut it up, skinned it, quartered it, did all the things you would do to prepare livestock to be eaten. Verse 5, And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. Now, do you remember what Ahab said whenever that prophet told him the parable? And, And Ahab rendered the judgment, didn't he? He was severe with his judgment, as he should have been. Verse 6, And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I appointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given thee unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine own house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, 
and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Listen to David's response. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. And that's what Ahab should have said. I have sinned against the Lord. God delivered Ben-Hadad into my hands, and I've let him go twice now when he was appointed to destruction. So we see the wrong way to respond to God's chastening, and we see the right way. But you know the best way is to try to avoid God's chastening by being obedient in the first place. You know that's the, that's the loving intent of our parents, and if you're parents, it's your loving intent that when you chasten your children that they would desire from that moment on not to repeat the behavior that caused the chastening and then to eventually learn not to do that because it's the right thing to do or it's the right thing not to do. Chapter 21. And it came to pass after these things. Now, what are these things? The things we just read about. Because we left Ahab off as heavy and displeased with the sentence of the Lord upon him as spoken by the prophet. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel hard by the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. Sometimes the the writing of the translators is a little bit hard to understand. So let's go back through there and make sure we know what these pronouns and Uh, these prepositions and so forth are referring to. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard. Now you see the comma there, which was in Jezreel. Naboth was a Jezreelite. And which was in Jezreel doesn't necessarily mean that the vineyard was in Jezreel. It could mean that Naboth was in Jezreel. We would use the word whom or who rather than which. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me rather than who strengtheneth me. In some of the more modern translations, you'll see the word who there. So it's not uncommon to see that in the Bible. So the vineyard was hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. It was in his sight, wasn't it? It was within his sight. It was next to the palace, very coveted territory. In the Old Testament, there are a couple of Jezreels. One was a city given to the tribe of Judah in Joshua chapter 15, verse 56. But we know this one is not the same one because Samaria is in the northern kingdom and Judah was the southern kingdom. So this Jezreel was apparently of the tribe of Issachar, one of the ten tribes, lesser known, but still one of the ten tribes of the northern kingdom. And most likely that's the Jezreel from which Naboth came. And it was also a place, Jezreel, it was a place to which Elijah ran ahead of Ahab. You remember when he said, hey, rains are coming, you better get in that chariot and get off this mountain. And so Ahab took off in the chariot, of course, and Elijah outran him and met him there, and he went to Jezreel. Now, the word hard by in verse 21, it says, hard by the palace. 
That's not a phrase we use very much. In fact, I don't, even I don't use that one, hard by. But it has the idea of being in proximity to or very close to, and in fact, even joined to in some cases. Other translations render this phrase as next to the palace or close to the palace. So you get the idea. The vineyard was right by the palace. That'd be like having a vineyard next to the White House, wouldn't it? People might covet that. And one would think that the location of this vineyard was a safe place. It was next to the king. After all, who would dare destroy it? Who would dare steal from it? But if the king is wicked, like Ahab, this is the worst place to have a vineyard. My money is safe inside a bank unless the banker is a thief, and then it's no longer safe. Let's look at verse 2. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house. And I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it. Or, if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. Do you fellows remember this old trick? You try to get your little brother or maybe a younger kid at school to trade you something. And what he has is better than what you have, but you use trickery. Now, when I was in fourth and fifth grade, we used to shoot marbles out on the playground. Now, the Lord help us if Mr. Bingham, our principal, found out we were playing for keeps, because that was gambling. But he let us play marbles as long as we didn't play for keeps. And he had, he had more than two eyes on his head. I think he had 400 eyes on his head. He could see everything going on in the playground. Well, that scared me enough never to play for keeps. But we still played marbles. So let's say the little boy playing marbles with me has a cat eye marble. That's the big one. And I really want that. But all I have is a bunch of little shooter marbles. Those are the smaller ones. So I tell the other kid that this shooter marble I have is really expensive. Lots of people have asked me for it. And I've said, no, it's mine. It's expensive. Nobody else has one like it. So I'm going to trade you this for your cat eye marble. And if I could get him to trade me a cat eye marble for that little shooter, then I got the best end of that deal, didn't I? The obvious question, if he was on his toes, would be, if your marble is so special, why would you want to trade it away? Why would you want to get rid of it? Well, Ahab tried this trick with Naboth. Look back in verse 2. He said in the middle of the verse, I will give thee for it a better vineyard. Well, now, Ahab, if you have a vineyard that is better than the one Naboth has, why would you trade it? You're the king. You don't have to give that to anybody. So a little bit of trickery that somehow made it onto the playgrounds of Stephen F. Austin Elementary School in Slayton, Texas back in the 70s. Now, Ahab also had a plan B. Perhaps Naboth said, I'm not trading my vineyard. Then Ahab said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll pay you for it. I'll give you good money for it. 
After all, you could look at it as a good return on your real estate investment. Verse 3. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. You know, when somebody asks you to do something that you know is against God's will, and the way you'll know it is it's against God's word. You don't have to try to guess what God's will is. Just read your Bible. If you just tell them no, which is good enough, that's fine. But if you tell them what what Naboth did, the Lord forbids that. The Lord says no. Somebody's got their phone on, and and I hear myself uh, repeating, okay. But Naboth said essentially no. He said it the right way. The Lord said no. But he told Ahab no. Now, Ahab was not accustomed to getting that answer, was he? And now this is twice that he's been rebuked. He was rebuked in the last chapter because he gave away Ben-Hadad. Twice, when the Lord delivered him to be destroyed. And now he's being told no by a citizen of this country. You can't have this vineyard because the Lord says no. And so I say no. And in fact, you could go a step further. Naboth not only said no, but he was very respectful about it. He was respectful to his fathers. That is, his father and grandfather and all of those who came before him and whose vineyard that was in the generations past. Now, are we learning something here about what we do with our father's inheritance? The one he gave us in Jesus Christ that's ours? Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. It's 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now listen to what it says about the inheritance. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God, through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, this is an undefiled inheritance, and it belongs to every person who is a Christian. And did you know there is an object lesson here, a type of undefiled inheritance? We're learning about it from Naboth, and it was spoken of by Peter. But we find another place in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 9, where there's a very specific command given to the children of Israel about their vineyards. Here's what it says. It's Deuteronomy 22, verse 9, where Moses said to the children of Israel, Thou shalt not sow thy vineyard with diverse, that means mingled, seeds lest the fruit of thy seed which thou hast sown and the fruit of thy vineyard be defiled. Naboth refused to accept payment or to make a trade 
for this vineyard. And he did not want it defiled. It was given to him by his fathers. And so not only did he not want to give his inheritance away, he also did not want herbs to be planted where only grapes should be growing. You all see the lesson there? Think about the church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is made up of all who have put their faith in Christ in every age and in the age to come. When we go off the scene, others who take our place and become Christians are part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the assembly of the saints here on earth should be undefiled. There should be none who join themselves to a church who are not Christians. There should be no herbs joining themselves to the vineyard where only grapes grow. But they do. They infiltrate the church. And they infiltrate it right here as much as they do out here. In fact, this is where it starts. This is where the the filtration goes wrong, isn't it? Well, we just let everybody in. On the Facebook messenger or on the Facebook page there, the, the Sunday schooling that that I have and by which I communicate to you all and so forth, I, I get these pop-up advertisements, and one of them was "How to Grow Your Church." And I thought, well, I don't need I don't need to read that. I know how the Lord grows His church, and how the Lord grows His church is how I want this one to grow by adding those daily who are saved. And if it's weekly or monthly or yearly, whatever it is, but only those who are saved. And while we invite everyone to come in and listen to the message, by being good gatekeepers, we don't allow a person who's an herb to join the grape vineyard. They're two different kinds of seeds. And you think about Naboth, what is he putting on the line here? He's opposing the king rather than selling out his inheritance. And he would rather oppose the king than mingle his vineyard with other seeds. And one more observation here is that Naboth was saying no to an enemy who desired to sow something other than grapes in the vineyard. Did you catch that part? Listen to Matthew chapter 13, verses 25 through 30. Another parable put he forth, that's Jesus, unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. Now, what's the good seed in our text? It's grape seed. That's it. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. That's herbs among the grapes in our text. And went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, did not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? That is everything, wheat and tares. But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. 
Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. When we are asked how the devil's crowd seems to show up and cause trouble in the church, this is our answer to them. An enemy hath done this. Naboth was not willing to let an enemy sow tares in his vineyard. Not only was the vineyard his precious inheritance, but the vines in it were to be undefiled. There was to be no competition with herbs for the nourishment of the vines. Verse 4, And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased. Boy, he sure is good at pouting, isn't he? That's how he felt when the prophet said, God said this is going to happen to you. Now Naboth told him no, said God said no. Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would not eat. So it's not just that Naboth said no, it was that the Lord said no. Because what does it say at the beginning of verse 4? It said, Ahab came to his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. And he said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. But what else had Naboth said? The Lord forbid it. The Lord forbid that I do this. I'm not giving this to you because the Lord forbid it. This is not some secular real estate deal, king. (laughs) This is from the Lord. I don't give that away. And so he was heavy and displeased. He went to bed, he pouted, and he refused to come to the supper table, didn't he? That's essentially what happened here. Now look in verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? I've found that people who are pouting, children and adults, by the way, are usually waiting for someone to come up to them and say, what's wrong? Now, I know you all are so spiritual you've never done nor allowed it in your house. It's usually seen in children, but it's also seen in adults who are acting like children, right? And every one of us have acted like a child, whether uh, you want to admit that or not. Verse 6, because you don't want me to hang out in verse 5 very long, do you? Verse 6, and he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else, if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. So continuing to sound very childish, Ahab tells Jezebel on Naboth. And Ahab is also telling us that what another person said had the power to affect his happiness. He truly did not get it that a person has the right to tell you no without you having a pity party about it. And furthermore, Naboth, as we learned, as we read, was quite respectful as he explained to the king why he could not, re- he could not part with this vineyard. Our flesh does not like to be told no. Started in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? In fact, it started in heaven with Lucifer. 
who wanted to exalt himself above the throne of God. And what was the answer? No. He didn't like it. And he got cast out of heaven. And our flesh does not like that. I've been told no in many forms in my life. So have you. I've been told no as a child when I wanted something. As a teenager when I wanted to go somewhere or partake in some activity. I've been told no as an adult when I didn't get a job or a promotion for which I applied. And as a husband, father, co-worker, friend, I've been told no. What makes it a little easier to take is when the person who tells me no takes the time to explain the reason for their answer. It doesn't mean I like it, but it's a lot easier to take than what you and I have told our kids and what our parents told us because I said so. Well, sometimes that has to be all you need to say. But at some point you do need to explain to your child, to your employee, your coworker, whoever it may be, your spouse, why it is you said what you said. Communication. And Naboth did that for the king, but the king didn't take it very well. Verse 7. And Jezebel his wife said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now this would have been a good opportunity for a God-fearing wife to remind Ahab of what God's word says about the Israelites' inheritance. To say, now, Ahab, you know God said to the Israelites back in Leviticus not to defile their vineyards. And Naboth was given this by his father, by his father, by his father. And ultimately, when you go back to the book of Joshua, by the Lord, as he gave the lots of land to the various tribes of the children of Israel. So you can't take that from him. You can't have that. That would have been a good time for her to, to counsel even her own husband to encourage him to obey the Lord. She could have calmed his spirit, prayed for him. But because she was Jezebel, she disregarded God's word. We already know that much about her, as her father was a priest of the prophets of Baal. She disregarded what God said about inheritance. And by her very words in the first part of this verse, she disregarded the chain of command over Israel. It was God over Israel. God over the king over Israel. God over the prophets over Israel. But it was always God in the driver's seat. And she said, dost thou, dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? In other words, Ahab, who's in charge here? You or Naboth? Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 through 11. The Lord said through Moses, When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he giveth thee. Who gave him the vineyard? God did. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. Jezebel willfully set aside the fact that God had given the land to Israel. The Israel over which Ahab ruled, by the way. And even though Ahab was a wicked king, even he conceded the right, admitted that it was the right of Naboth to keep his vineyard. He didn't slay Naboth. He went back and said, he went back and pouted, and his wife said, what's wrong? And he said, 
he won't give that to me. What does that tell us? He didn't like it, but he allowed Naboth to keep his vineyard. So even in his childish tantrum, he was still wiser than Jezebel who said, who's in charge around here? What a haughty thing to say. He exercised better judgment to let Naboth keep the vineyard, even though Ahab didn't like it. And Jezebel, on the other hand, had no respect for God, for Naboth, the vineyard, or even her own husband Ahab, who was still her king. And next week we'll continue with this verse and look at some more things that uh, I think will enlighten us about God's purpose in putting these words in our text. Any questions or comments about the lesson? Okay. Father, we're so thankful for all who came today and all who tuned in, for all who will listen to the message. For, Lord, this is your message to us, spoken through the frailty of a teacher. And so we ask that your spirit confirm those words in the hearts of the listeners and take away anything, Lord, that is confusing, anything that would tend to distract us from your word. And, Lord, may we be bold to tell others about your word, to encourage other Christians to read your word, especially in the midst of these very trying and confusing times. And now, Lord, as we go into our next service, we pray for our pastor, pray for all who will sing, who will pray, and, Lord God, for the study of the word. And, Lord, we just want to glorify you today and thank you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.